0: your positive positive Positive. imprint imprint Imprint. Imprint. stories are everywhere people and their positive action inspire positive achievements your pi could mean the world to you get ready for your positive imprint
1: well hello this is Catherine, your host of your positive imprint oceanographer wins big money big $250,000 money in rainfall forecasting contest. Well, Ray Schmidt, an oceanographer with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, has been trying to predict rainfall. Ray and his two sons entered a forecast contest, a rainfall forecast contest, hosted by the United States Bureau of Reclamation. Listen to Ray's research and contest details on this free podcast. Please provide positive reviews and hit the five-star rating. Support me by downloading my episodes and following me. My website is yourpositiveimprint.com. And (laughs) guess what? I am going to be releasing a special bonus episode. You get to interview me. I've received some requests to have an episode about myself. But I would really rather share stories from other people, but I also love the feedback from you, my listeners, so I am going to do this. Well, my marketing consultant, Celia, came up with an idea on how to do this for you. So here's how it's going to work. You can email me your questions or Facebook me your questions. Instagram, somehow get your questions to me that you would like me to answer course, I might not answer all of them. We'll see. But this bonus episode will launch later on this month. I will also announce your name, first name only for privacy reasons and the country you live in. But I will announce your last name if you want me to announce it. I am fine with that. You just have to let me know in your email or however you're getting a hold of me. So let me know what you want to know about my positive imprints or something about me. And I guess I should set a deadline. So September 20th is the deadline. So send in your questions and continue to send your feedback. I so much appreciate your feedback. Thank you. Your positive imprint. What's your PI? I am with Ray Schmidt. And I met Ray when I was at Helen Phillips talking regarding climate change and her research. And... Ray approached me with a wonderful, interesting story, but before we get to that story, we want to hear what you do and where you're from, and Ray, welcome.
0: Well, thank you, Catherine. Yeah, I'm Ray Schmidt. I'm what's called a physical oceanographer here at the the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And uh, for much of my career, I've been studying uh, the salinity variations in the ocean. Now, the ocean is about three and a half percent Salt on average, but it has variations. It's only a third three point one percent here, right off the Atlantic coast, and uh, but it gets to can get up to four uh, percent up in in places like the Red Sea. And,
1: and what what's the difference? Why is there a, such a
0: difference right. in salinity? Uh, it's because there's patterns in evaporation and rainfall oh. over the ocean, and see the interesting thing for me is because the ocean contains 97 percent of the water on the planet, it really is uh, central to the whole climate system because all that water has enormous heat capacity, so it's the memory of the climate system. It has a thousand times the heat capacity of the atmosphere, the ability to store heat, and also it has a hundred thousand times as much water as the atmosphere. So the fact that we have a livable climate is really due to the presence of our ocean. You know, it's the picture from space of the blue planet. Um, that's the unique thing about Earth. We have all this water. And the funny thing about uh, salinity variations in the ocean, we, as oceanographers, we study them because they're very important for determining how the ocean currents flow. They uh, control the density to some extent, temperature and salinity both control the density of the seawater. And so these density variations in the ocean uh, determine how the currents flow, like the Gulf Stream and uh, the water at high latitudes that sinks down and, and gets mixed around the planet. So uh, it's important to know what the salinity is for understanding how the ocean going to move And the origin of the salinity variations that I mentioned are due to the patterns of evaporation and precipitation. And of course, all our rainfall and land has to come from the ocean. Uh, We're especially aware of that here uh, in New England, because we have these storms. uh, We call them nor'easters. And every time, the wind is from the northeast, or east in general. And that's when we get rain we get it with these nor'easters, and so we are very well aware that all the rain comes from the ocean. But I think uh, you know people in the Midwest uh, don't realize how far that moisture has traveled and uh, there's a a funny thing if you look back or if you Google global water cycle uh, online, you'll see that most of the pictures that you see. Do an image search on Google and you'll see all this land and all the processes on land of evaporation and transpiration and flow into rivers and lakes and stuff and then you'll see a little bitty corner that has the ocean in it and there'll be arrows of water coming off the ocean and stuff. But it it really gives a terrible misrepresentation of the actual global water cycle because most of the water cycle is over the ocean. Now, I got into studying the water cycle uh, back in the the late 1980s, Um, and at that time, you know, nobody cared if it rained on the ocean. (laughs) Who cares? And so it was kind of a neglected topic, and I got into it uh, when people were starting to realize it's important, so it's it's paid off well for me as a research topic.
1: And have you always been here along the Atlantic?
0: I grew up in, uh, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then I got my PhD at the University of Rhode Island, which is just about 80 miles uh, west of here. Mm -hmm. And I was right on the ocean there, and and then I moved over here for my postdoc. And I've I've been here more than 40 years. Oh,
1: so this is your home.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is my home. It's where we raised our kids, et cetera. (laughs) Um, So, yeah people don't realize that there's all this huge water cycle going on out over the ocean. And uh, so the source of all water on the planet is evaporation from the ocean. And um, uh, I could tell the the units, but they probably wouldn't mean much to people. There's 13 million cubic meters per second evaporating from the surface of the ocean. But only about 10% of that cycles onto land. So most of it falls right back on the ocean, and there's there's a strong recycling, um, but there are patterns. So the mid latitude, uh, we call them the subtropical high pressure systems, the Bermuda High. You've probably heard it discussed. That's the same latitude as the Sahara Desert, and it's part of the atmospheric circulation called the Hadley Cell, where water rises. Or, I'm sorry, air rises near the equator and it loses all its moisture by rain on the uh, in low latitudes. And then it comes down, sinks at mid-latitudes, about 25 to 30 degrees north and south. And that area is very dry. And as the cycle goes around in the Hadley cell, it picks up moisture from the ocean. So those mid-latitude regions, um, Uh, around uh, 30 north and south, are very dry zones. The Sahara Desert, this central North Atlantic, uh, across the Pacific. So those dry zones are actually exporting ocean moisture to the rest of the planet. Now, um, in my group, we've been the first to actually try to do the sums, figure out how much water is moving from one place to another and and, uh, trying to quantify things. and um, it's been and fun. How do
1: you look? how do you determine where the water has moved? Do you obviously take samples from the, are you talking about water from the air? The
0: uh, moisture in the air. Okay. Uh, well, we've been analyzing um, uh, atmospheric models. Okay. Uh, you know, we have a lot of data on atmospheric motion. The atmosphere is pretty well sampled compared to the ocean. And so it's kind of, it was kind of easier to figure out where the water was going. Uh, okay in the atmosphere, and then from the patterns of evaporation and precipitation over the ocean, we can infer the water cycle in the ocean. So a typical evaporation rate in, in mid-latitudes is two or three meters of water per year. Now, sea level isn't changing like that, so that means that the ocean has to resupply that water all the wow. time. So there's circulations in yeah, the ocean yeah. to to bring sea level, keep sea level uniform. So. Some places it's raining two or three meters a year. Other uh-huh. places it's evaporating two or three meters a year. So there's this big water cycle inside the ocean, and I've been able to study that. What, I've, what I realized back in um, 1993, there were massive floods on the Mississippi River. The Missouri and Mississippi yes. had, had, had a huge amount of rainfall in the watershed, and so this big pulse of water moved on the Mississippi. You know, it would f- flood St. Louis, and then flood Memphis, and then it flooded New Orleans. Right. Oh, as an oceanographer, what was interesting to me is this big pulse, extra pulse of fresh water, got into the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, it was a caused a very noticeable drop in the ocean salinity. The ocean surface. Salinity. How did
1: the water get there? Was it because of the oh, fl- flow? Okay, so the the flowing down because of and, the Mississippi. You know, the
0: Mississippi discharge was okay. many times its normal it discharge. And this big blob of fresh water got into the um, the Gulf of Mexico, and there's a current there that feeds the Gulf Stream. We call it the Loop Current. Anyway, it got entrained in the Loop Current, and it went up the Gulf Stream. And there were uh, three or four papers written by uh, oceanographers from. Texas and uh, Miami, uh, documenting the flow of this big blob of fresh water going up the coast. So the thought that occurred to me um, was that if this big pulse of fresh water is freshening the ocean, sometime before all that rain, some part of the ocean had to get saltier. You know, water and salts are conserved (laughs) on the planet and if you take it out of the ocean and then it goes on land and then flows back to the ocean and freshens the oceans. Some part of the ocean got saltier before all that rainfall. So I had this notion that if we looked at sea surface salinity variations, we might be able to predict rainfall on land. Now, it was just an abstract idea that I had. And over the years, I tried many times to get it funded. So. Uh, It it was just one of these ideas that I could never quite get going. I was was able to get funding to look at the ocean side of the water cycle and and how it affects the salinity distributions in the ocean. And uh, For a while, uh, I was the NASA salinity science team leader and uh, helped to sell the idea of putting up a salinity sensing satellite, which they uh, did, uh, I guess, Went up in uh, 2011 and lasted for about five years. It, it's it was a it's a difficult measurement and it's a new technique. Europeans also have a salinity satellite and theirs is still up. And uh, uh, NASA has put up a second satellite that uh, now does salinity. So so uh, in the midst of of doing the uh, NASA sponsored work on salinity in the ocean. Um, one of the great things about the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution is we have an endowed uh, fellowship program for postdocs. And um, in the applicant pool uh, back in, well, it's probably 2013, uh, I, I found uh, a young lady getting a PhD from Duke University, and she had worked on rainfall in uh, the southeast and connected it to the North Atlantic subtropical high pressure system. And I was saying, oh, she's perfect for this project. And so I was able to <laughs> fight for her and, and get her to come up to Woods Hole. And uh, she turned out to be fantastic. And she got here, and uh, I gave her this problem. And we drew a box around the salinity maximum of the North Atlantic. And I said, I think this water, the moisture evaporating that's causing this high salinity is going into the Amazon. Can you? Can we look at variations in the salinity? We have historical records, pretty good historical records for salinity in the North Atlantic. And can we correlate them with rainfall in, mm-hmm. the, in the Amazon? So she started working on it. And pretty soon she told me, you know, you got the direction wrong. That water leaving that part of the ocean is actually going into Africa. I said, oh, what?
1: gosh, <laughs> wow, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. And, and, and so was she right? Oh, yeah, she she showed uh, how it was working. And so she she could take the records of the salinity variation. Actually, there was an area with more salinity variation to the northeast of the first box we looked at that was clearly going into Africa. And um, she found that she could take the variations in the springtime salinity in this big patch of ocean and uh, predict the summertime rainfall in what's called the Sahel of Africa. It's sort of the boundary between the Sahara Desert and the tropical rainforest, and depending on where the, the rain band, how far north and south it goes, uh, it's, it's this transition zone, and some, some years they have plentiful rainfall, mm-hmm. and the crops grow, and the animals thrive, and sometimes they have this drought. So it's, and there's a lot of people that live there, so it uh, has a lot of consequence. But it was rather strange that there would be this three-month delay because moisture in the atmosphere, uh, it only stays up there 10 days. So it it goes pretty quick. But it turned out what was happening is if there was a lot of evaporation from a certain patch of ocean in the springtime, it would seed moisture in the soil at the same time in the spring. And then the fact that you had a, a moist, uh, surface uh, in the um, in the in the spring, as as the land warmed up, that water would evaporate, and uh, you basically convert all this solar energy into what we call latent heat energy, and that activates the atmosphere. Uh, moisture in the atmosphere is is fuel for atmospheric motions. And that would, uh, so once convection got going because of all the soil moisture in the spring, it would uh, sort of cascade on itself and it would cause the summer monsoon to pull in water from other parts of the ocean. And, uh, you know, the the sums worked out. The amount of extra rainfall that that, um, showed up in Africa was about equal in area and in amount of the water that had left the ocean earlier. So uh, we got a nice paper published in uh, Science Advances and then she started looking more broadly because we could see other correlations when we looked at the statistics and we found that if you look at the salinity off the east coast from Cape Cod all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, if you look at the springtime salinity off the east coast here, you can predict the summertime rainfall in the Midwest, oh. in the Upper Midwest, which is you know really big for farming in the U.S., it's the that's the grain Belt. That's where corn and soy are, are grown. So, um, and we wrote another paper on that in the journal of Climate, and uh, they were really cool, exciting papers. It turned out the salinity was much better than any other predictor you could name, and but here we were showing that that moisture, you could actually track it. It was In the summer, it really comes straight up from the Gulf of Mexico. In the spring, it's seeded by uh, uh, extra rainfall in the south, and that, that built up a thing called the Great Plains low-level jet that carries summertime moisture right up into the Midwest. So we worked out this uh, beautiful scenario, had all the the atmospheric motions worked out, and we got several nice publications out of it. But in the course of doing these publications, etc., we were trying to get funding to keep the postdoc around because her fellowship was only 18 months and we wanted to keep her because she was really good. She's fantastically productive. We couldn't do it. We had several proposals turned out. We were trying foundations and all this stuff. Couldn't couldn't sell it.
1: That's too bad.
0: And so she went back to Duke University, because they knew how good she was. And um, so, but that's, I, I guess she left in, uh, in uh, 16, 2016. But that summer, I was able to get a summer student fellow, which is an undergraduate, on a, again, an endowed fellowship. And she was also very bright. I had her try something different. And I said, well, we're, we're discovering all these links from... Salinity variations to rainfall on land. Let's do it the other way. Let's look at the landfall uh, rain record, and then look globally um, in the ocean for all the variations in temperature and salinity that might be influencing it uh, uh, three months ahead of time. We were le- focused on this this law, this seasonal lead,
1: to try to predict
0: for prediction okay. purposes. And there we did even better. And I for this. We looked at things like the Midwest. We could explain even in, with the East Coast salinity, we could explain about 40% of the variations. And I, th- I, can't, I can't remember the exact number, but explain, we explained a lot more in the Midwest by looking globally. Um, uh, but I d- we decided for the uh, paper, uh, we would focus on the winter rain in the Southwest. And I arbitrarily picked Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California, just drew a box around those. Three states, a little bit of Utah. And so we looked at the total winter rainfall, and then uh, looked at uh, globally for salinity and temperature variations. And we sound, found some very surprising things: what we call teleconnections, you know, areas of the ocean that connect with uh, areas on land. And um, it erases some really interesting dynamical questions. And we looked at both temperature and salinity, and now temperature is important because warm water evaporates more easily than cold water. So, But I look at salinity as a record for how much water actually left the ocean. If the salinity is high, it means more water was exported from this patch of ocean, and its I guarantee you it's going to rain more somewhere else. Now, it might be on the ocean, but some of that water's going to end up on land. We figure about a third of it ends up on land, okay. and if that water, if that patch of ocean is fresher than normal, that means there's going to be less rainfall somewhere else. So you can look at look at those things and you have this expected correlation.
1: And so are you able to do that globally, or you're talking about just in this area where you're looking at the salinity here to predict California, New Mexico, et cetera?
0: We look globally for for, for the, the southwest for, the for winter rain in okay. in the southwest, we but use, for
1: predictions.
0: And so, when we did, ran the prediction model, and it wasn't terribly sophisticated, it was uh, well, just a very linear uh, multiple linear regression. Um, we could explain seventy percent of the variations in the winter rain in the Southwest, whereas El Nino could only explain fourteen percent. I mean, we huge improvement in predictability and it just emphasizes the crucial importance of the ocean to rainfall and land. We had you know uh, continued to fail to get funding to get research. Uh, It took a while to get the paper about the Southwest out. that just came out last year but um, a little later in December I got an email from a colleague uh, in ocean engineering named Steve Elgar on the, December 23rd and he pointed me to this website that was advertising a rainfall forecasting contest for the U.S. West sponsored by the Bureau of Reclamation. Now the Bureau of Reclama- Reclamation is part of the Department of the Interior and basically they manage many of the dams in the West and all the hydropower stations. Uh, so they're constantly evaluating whether to release right. water from a dam if they expect more water more rainfall to come or they want to save it for the summer drought and you know they supply water to farmers all over the west and the contest was pretty intimidating every 2 weeks you had to develop a forecast at 3 and 4 week lead and 5 and 6 week lead for the total amount of rainfall in that 2 week period so
1: for what the, area
0: For the west, basically west. All the west. All the west, west of the Mississippi. And it was basically around 601 degree squares. Uh, You could also (laughs) also forecast the temperature and um, uh, you had to do it every two weeks so you had to produce 26 forecasts for a whole year and then uh, four weeks later you get scored on your three and four week forecast, six weeks later you get scored on your on your five and six week forecast. And I looked at it. and I said, "Oh, it's enormous amount of work. Um, uh, a lot of uh, computer and work and statistics." And I had sort of evolved in my career. <laughs> I had I I don't even do much programming anymore uh, because I mostly write proposals. It you know? <laughs> uh, don't get approved. <laughs> <laughs> that don't get funded. No, I could always get funding to work on the salinity side of things, but not the rainfall side of things. So anyway, uh, I had got this email on December 23rd. So two days later, the family gets together for Christmas. And I see, I have three sons. And my oldest is an organic chemist. And the younger two are identical twins. At that time, they were 28 years old. And uh, they're both engineers. One's a, a software developer, and the other's a mechanical engineer. And I, I I see the guys and I, I say what's up guys and and they said oh we've been using uh, artificial intelligence to to optimize our computer <laughs> game playing and I go computer game playing and and we had used some artificial intelligence mm-hmm. in in one of our papers uh, for predicting in the well in the Sahel both the Sahel and the Midwest uh, we used a version of artificial intelligence and. Uh, I immediately the light bulb went off and i said oh here's here's my team <laughs> <laughs> So I start working on them uh, twisting their arm and I say, Look at this competition they're offering a hundred thousand dollars for the best rainfall forecast at five, at three and four week lead, another hundred thousand for the best forecast at five and six week lead. Why don't we take your your newfound skills in artificial intelligence and uh, apply them to this this is a real contest, not just computer gaming. Okay. This is here's a real game. So, you know, there were a couple of they offered the opportunity to do some practice sessions just to get the data in the right format. You know, there's all these special formats you have to use, and my son, especially Stephen, the software guy, he could master all that, all the computer stuff. And Eric was working on the artificial intelligence stuff. They're they're both smart, hardworking guys and uh if you don't mind a little aside about a father bragging about his kids
1: of course not
0: they're identical twins and i could tell at an early age they were born to be engineers you know they were good at.
1: <laughs> it was a prediction <laughs>
0: <laughs> they were good at solving problems uh, they were very mechanical you know playing with legos was one of their favorite things and and they developed uh a really good way of working together to solve problems. You know, when they were three years old and they wanted to get up on a counter, one would pull the chair over and hold it and the other one would climb up. But, you know, they, they would just mm-hmm. uh, uh, were the best of friends. When they got to high school, they wanted to go to different high schools, which is a bit of a pain. One went to a, a private uh, school for reading and writing and the other went to the public high, high school. And uh, so they had different kind of educational opportunities. But two years into high school, they take the SAT uh, exams, and their total score is identical. Oh which, my goodness. Which, which oh, my blew goodness. my mind. That's
1: funny. And, <laughs>
0: but the one who went to the public high school was 100 points higher in the math, because he was, he was on the math team. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but he was 100 points lower in the verbal. And the other, his his brother had gone to a reading and writing school so he, he didn't have the opportunity to do as much math uh, but he got more uh, you know uh, more writing opportunities and public speaking opportunities so anyway it was quite interesting uh, nature over nurture or something
1: <laughs>
0: so and you know they're out there in the working world they have good jobs and uh, so I had to, had to work on them because they're young people get a lot of pressure from, <laughs> from their, their employers. Uh, but they were able to, I think they set aside uh, one night a week to kind of work on this thing. And so they submitted the first forecast in April of 17. So one month later, hey, Dad, we're winning. <laughs> and we had a fantastic first forecast. And, you know, as the contest went on, we had good forecasts and, and bad forecasts. But and
1: this was in real time, right? Your forecast so was weeks. in real time.
0: Yeah, so every two weeks on Monday would submit a forecast, and on Thursday would get scored from the one okay. from a month earlier. Okay. And we were beating the NOAA model. We were beating all the competition. We basically said in, in both categories, we essentially stayed ahead the whole time. It was based on an average, so if you had a bad week, a good week could compensate for it. And we ended strong. And the interesting thing is our longer lead forecast, five- and six-week, were actually a little better on average score than our uh, shorter-term forecast, which really impressed the organizers when I Mm -hmm. talked to them later. Uh, At the end of the – by May of 2018, we knew we had won the two grain folk categories. Um, And then we had to submit our code. And we also had to run our model on an 11-year hindcast. Uh, just to prove that the one year of the competition was not a fluke. And there was bonus points if you won the hindcast. I mean, you could win 100000 in each category, but you might or might not win the an extra 25000 for ah. the hindcast. And we didn't know how we did on that uh, until uh, October.
1: Uh, they would grade you on the hindcast hmm. based on... The prediction...
0: We couldn't use the rainfall data. We could use o- all the ocean data we wanted. Okay. We ran so, our model on the ocean data right. and predicted the okay. the rainfall. Now ahead. I
1: understand. So you were using your your own almost inventive procedure.
0: Mm-hmm. Now I can yeah. see it. And that so was to prove that ocean. we had something
1: True, that, real. that
0: worked yeah. for other years, not just 17 and 18. We might have been lucky. You know?
1: Right, right.
0: So uh, that was very gratifying. Uh, but, I mean, we knew we had good scores on the, uh, on the hindcast. And one of the qualifications was you had to do better on the hindcast than the NOAA model had. And we had met that criteria, but we didn't know whether we were the best or anything right. else. And we didn't find out until October. Uh, it took them a long wow, time. I think they were overwhelmed with all the complications of all these uh, contest submissions, models, a lot of a lot of work to be done to analyze them so I'm sure some poor guy really had to work hard (laughs) through the summer and fall to evaluate all these models. October I get an email from them, Uh, we've analyzed your code and you've been certified to receive $100,000 for each of the categories, the rainfall categories and $25,000 for each of the the hindcasts in the two categories. So we knew we were getting $250,000. And uh, so that uh, was very exciting. Well,
1: congratulations on yeah, that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so all the work was worth it. And, and it, uh, probably in May when a contest finished, I said, guys, we, we did really well in this contest. I think we have something new and exciting. Uh, there may be uh, uh, a market for good rainfall forecast. Farmers would want to know what the seasonal rain, what the subseasonal and seasonal rainfall was going to be. As well as commodity traders, and actually, <laughs> there's a broad application. Resort operators, you sure. Know? Is it going to be snow this winter, or, right. or uh, yeah. if you're running a beach resort, what's the weather going to be? Is it going to be rainy and, you know, out Even during the contest, I spoke with Amazon, uh, because retailers want to know whether they sh- ship sunscreen or snowblowers. You know, it's uh, people want to know this, so we set up a website. Um, hoping to attract some interest we actually set it up uh, in probably june of of 18 but then the actual decisions on the contest just dragged out forever and so my my son's kind of lost interest but but since we got the money i've been pushing on them again and and saying let's see what we can do maybe there's some commercial interest here so we're having some discussions about whether we could form a company. And so it, it, it should be uh, useful and it would be great to see our technique expanded and uh, to serve the world. You know.
1: Ray talks about climate change and legislation.
0: I've uh, done more than my share of uh, National Academy reports trying to influence government policy and it's been very frustrating. Back in uh, 2010, 2011, um, it was the early Obama administration and we had a great deal of optimism that they were going to be very active on, in climate. And uh, there were, Congress had commissioned a very large study at the, from the National Academy of Sciences and I was on the the science of climate change. I was on a team of about 20, 20 people and we wrote uh, a big uh, volume about um, the science of climate change, and uh, I particularly contributed to the uh, the chapter on sea level rise. So the report comes out, I think it was the spring of 2011, at just at the same time as the, the massive oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh yes. So every environmental uh, journalist was focused on the oil right. spill. And and nobody paid any attention to our massive report, which of <laughs> five books, uh, you know, th- stands this high, and uh, it went out there uh, and and sort of disappeared without a whisper. Uh, I it was it was like, oh, oh this Oh, Can work. you
1: resend it? Resend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, this this administration doesn't want to hear it at all. So that's how it goes.
1: Okay. So you, you're the group of scientists
0: published the report.
1: Right, and you sent it up to the administration, at least in the United States. What ever happened? Why couldn't you get that?
0: Well, it was a choice in the administration to focus on health care uh, okay. to, you know, the Affordable Care Act rather than climate. And um, an interesting aspect of it that is that the um, NOAA's uh, uh, science advisor uh, is uh, a brilliant man named John Holdren. And he's actually lives here in Woods Hole. Uh, he lives a couple of blocks from me, and I, you know, I see him when he's out walking his dog. <laughs> and uh, John is uh, a very uh, highly respected climate scientist. And so he was, he's director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And so he was very... During Obama's. During okay. the Obama... The whole Obama administration, and uh, early on, he was advocating strongly that they make climate uh, one of the main issues uh, uh, in the administration. And um, it happened that they decided to focus on uh, healthcare instead. Oh,
1: so that's and,
0: and you okay. know, there's you only have so much political capital,
1: right, mm-hmm. Rod? That's true, and you only have so much time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, now. In their defense, they were able to do a lot of things um, administratively. You know, in the executive branch, they set higher uh, auto emission standards. John actually accomplished quite a bit, uh, but they weren't able to uh, push anything major through Congress. Uh, partly because after that um, first year, uh, Congress flipped over to Republican control, and it was pretty clear it wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, our report, which is called America's Climate Choices uh, from the National Academy of Sciences, uh, was actually a report to Congress. And I don't think Congress even held any hearings on it, which is the thing they would normally do with a report. I, I mean, it's a shame. It's uh,
1: So can you explain for me, too, and listeners, our... The whole global discussion out in Europe with regard to climate change and the summit, and what was the what's the purpose of that if Congress isn't going to work on any legislation?
0: Well, there's an international body that does reports similar to America's climate choices. Uh, called the IPCC, Intergovernmental Program on Climate Change. And about every five years or so, they publish a report somewhat kind of similar to ours. Ours was kind of focused on the U.S. just to try to get Congress (coughs) moving on how important it is to the U.S. to deal with sea level rise and uh, intense uh, droughts and in California and intense floods in the Midwest. Uh, These are things we're going to have to deal with. The unfortunate thing is, in America, unlike Europe, the Europeans are taking climate change seriously. We have, very unfortunately, uh, have a very, climate has become a politicized issue. Now, that wasn't always true. No. because Republicans were supportive of climate research uh, back in the in the early Bush days, uh, the first treaty uh, was signed by uh, President Bush, and uh, even back in in two thousand, I testified in front of a uh, U.S. Senate committee about climate, and uh, John McCain was the chair of the committee, and John was very interested in, in climate change, and and. Uh, he's a uh, smart guy and he asked all the right questions and we had this great back and forth about about the ocean's role in climate and i, I was really optimistic that and he, you know at that time he was uh, very much supportive of, of climate uh, dealing with the climate change uh, but then you know the the money from big oil got in there and basically polluted our our political system so if a republican wants to have funding for his next campaign he has to toe the line from big oil and uh, you know and they'll completely deny proven facts uh, you know it's just absurd which
1: doesn't make sense to me because science i mean this is a science it's not a yeah it's it, it's, it's science not a philosophy. and you know a and
0: and 20 years ago uh, republicans were supportive of science and now they've suddenly become anti-science just because Uh, the people that are uh, supporting their uh, their campaign funds it's it's really sad to see
1: okay so then uh, and i and i've always seen europe bypass in the environment area compared to the rest of the world
0: well even china China knows uh, it's got a big problem. They have a huge pollution problem. I've been to Beijing a few times, and you, you know. But
1: they're talking about it.
0: They're talking they're about it. They're dealing with it. They know it. they have to shut down right. the coal plants. They're building most of the solar panels on the planet nowadays. We've—we're we've, letting our solar industry collapse, uh, and China is getting all the business. Uh, and so we're doing some very foolish things in this country that in twenty years from now are really going to. If hurt we have
1: us. twenty years.
0: Well, sea level rise is a very slow process, Um, and it's difficult to get human beings to think long term. Um, uh, We're all Congress, you know, they're on a two-year cycle; Uh, they won't be in office uh, 20 years from now, or or even at the end of the century. And you know, we do a lot of projections for how things are going to be in uh, 2100, but it doesn't stop there. That carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere is going to be there for thousands of years. Absolutely. And, and the sea level is just going to keep coming up, and coming up, and coming up.
1: Okay. So, um, again, back, I want to. The summit, the climate the, change The uh, Paris summit. Agreement? Mm hmm.
0: That, that Trump the, pulled out of. You.
1: Right. So, how. What are, what are they actually. I mean, we're not there now, but what are they accomplishing there? when they come together at the table?
0: Yeah, well, unfortunately you know? it's all voluntary. I don't know that much about it. I, um, I, I know people who occasionally go to some of those meetings and it, I think it gets to be frustrating because you, you lay out the science, you lay out the facts, and then they get ignored by the politicians because they're not willing to, to uh, change the system. Now, I mean, Europe at least is giving lip service to it, and, and I, they are trying to do some things. Um,
1: are there any other countries that are moving swiftly on the climate change issue?
0: Um,
1: uh, and taking I don't
0: really know. Uh, I was just curious. If I, you know, probably China is doing as much as, as anyone in terms of... Uh, Pulling away. I mean, there's. They're probably still building coal plants. I don't actually know because they have a huge demand for energy, but they're doing more for solar and wind than just about anybody. Okay. Uh, but, you know, they have a lot. They're the biggest emitter right now, so they know that they need to do a lot.
1: Um, it's just you know that phrase. We're all in this together. Uh-huh. is such a true statement when it comes to climate change. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you're very interesting, and congratulations thank again. Thank you. It was good fun. <laughs> that is good fun. Well, I so much appreciate you sharing the story and tell your sons congratulations, and I hope they step on board the ship with you.
0: Yeah, and yeah we'll see. We're, we're talking about it seriously. It again.
1: Well, thank you, and congratulations also on your retirement. Thanks very much. Yeah, and thank you for your positive imprints you've provided globally for uh, in the yeah, science. World I hope so. Discovery. I hope
0: we can expand it to the globe. You know, we were quite good at forecasting the dry conditions in uh, the West that led to all the wild fires in California. So um, it should be useful to somebody.
1: Well, thank you. Wow, this is very interesting. Thank you so much for listening. Shortly after this recorded conversation, Ray and his son started their company, Salient Predictions, rainfall forecasts worth their salt. They forecast floods and droughts. Check out their website, salientpredictions.launchrock.com. I'll have that information and more on Ray Schmidt on my website, yourpositiveimprint.com meet next week's featured guests the steenland family from down under in australia a multi-talented family of animators film directors inventors cartoonists environmentalists Oh <laughs> wow it will be fun as the recorded conversation also takes place from their boat music by chris knoll visit chrisknoll.com. his music is for every mood take a listen to lay across my piano from his website another great fab song of his Follow me on Instagram and Facebook, Your Positive Imprint, Twitter, What's Your P.I.? Head over to my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, and sign up for email updates, read the blog, listen to other episodes, and you can listen to all of my episodes for from Radio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform, Your Positive Imprint, What's Your P.I.?